Collectives with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Professor and Dean of the University of Pennsylvania, Vijay Kumar. He spoke to our interviewer Lily about what he believes to be the central challenge in multi-robot systems. The synthesis of collective behaviours which enable group performance that exceeds the ability of any individual on its own. Collective behaviour falls into three categories, coordination, cooperation and collaboration. Coordination allows a group to complete a task more efficiently than an individual robot could by itself. Cooperation allows a group to accomplish a task which an individual robot could not complete on its own at all. And collaboration allows groups of different types of robots with diverse capabilities to complete multifaceted tasks which cannot be completed by just one type of robot. Professor Kumar discusses the challenges when studying and developing collective behaviours in robots, such as decentralization, communication, as well as data compression and abstraction. He also talks about drawing inspiration from science fiction and nature. Hi, welcome to RoboHub Podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure, I'm Vijay Kumar. I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm also the dean of the engineering school there. Um, and I do robotics. <laughs> and you're actually jointly appointed? In- yes, I have an appointment in mechanical engineering and applied mechanics. That's my home uh, appointment. I also have uh, appointments in computer information science and electrical and systems engineering. And so how did you kind of end up with a hand in all of those spaces? Uh, it's the nature of the field. So if you're doing robotics, you interact with students from different departments and you develop multiple affiliations. Um, in departments, I, I have affiliated with three departments. I'm a member of uh, IEEE, ASME, ACM. Uh, that's just the nature of the beast. Can you talk a little bit about your background to getting to where you are now? Sure, sure. I um, uh, Let's see. So I got interested, uh, this is a cliche, but I got interested in robotics from uh, watching the Jetsons mm-hmm. uh, and this notion of a flying car, which we're still trying working on. Um, but science fiction oftentimes tells a more powerful story than science does, and that uh, serves as a big motivating factor. But I got into uh, robotics in grad school, um, and uh, I went to Ohio State University where I worked on one of the first uh, ever uh, completely independent um, uh, walking vehicles. It was a six-legged walking vehicle uh, that weighed um, uh, three and a half tons, so a, a pretty substantial vehicle. And uh, so I wrote, uh, I developed some of the algorithms for coordinating uh, the motions of the legs um, and to distribute forces across six uh, feet um, and 18 actuators. So that was my doctoral work. Uh, And then when I came to Penn, instead of thinking about how multiple legs collaborate while they make the vehicle walk, I started looking at how multiple fingers can collaboratively uh, manipulate a grasped object Mm -hmm. or how multiple arms could grasp an object that was too heavy for a single arm to lift. 
Um, and so I got into this area of multi-robot systems um, and then on to multiple mobile ground robots and then all to multiple flying vehicles. Interesting. So if you have um, like multiple legs or multiple fingers, that's typically, I imagine, something very centralized where there's one deciding thing. But in a multi-robot environment, do you deal with kind of decentralized? Well, it's interesting... Um, uh, in an ideal world, you want to centralize everything. So what prevents you from centralizing everything? Well, uh, sometimes it's not possible to do all the computation in one place, in one, on one, one site. Um, and second, you might not be able to get the information to one site. Right. So if you think about um, the early days when we were doing walking vehicles, um, the processing power on individual legs or individual joints was not that great. I mean, we were talking about Intel uh, uh, personal computers powered by a single board, single chip, um, operating at half a megahertz. So megahertz, not gigahertz. Uh, so there was not a whole lot of compute on board, and uh, so you really had to uh, distribute the computation across multiple processors. In fact, my uh, colleagues uh, at that time wrote a multi-processor uh, operating system to enable uh, this kind of distributed computed com- computation to to uh, to happen in real time in a legged vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, we were forced into this distributed architecture, not because things were not connected, you couldn't flow the information, but because the computation was not, was too much for uh, a single computer. Um, and then uh, same thing with uh, multi-arm manipulation. Uh, it's actually very hard to uh, do all the computation in one location, although the, uh, the processors were a lot more advanced. They had coprocessors, but still you're struggling with the compute. Um, uh, so it made sense to kind of think about the framework where you partition the computation across two arms uh, or three arms, depending on how many arms you have. Um, so, yeah, um, now, of course, things are very different. Uh, when you have uh, 100 robots wandering around and the only link is Wi-Fi, right. um, then you're also throttled by uh, the communication link. Um, so there's this very interesting uh, trend that you know, plays out in computation. You know, back in the 60s, uh, everything was centralized. You, you, know, you did computation in the mainframe, on the mainframe, and then in the 80s, we had the client-server architectures. The stuff moved to the edges. Um, and then with mobile computing, everything went back to the cloud, centralized, and now we're back again at edge computing. Yeah. And in some sense, that back and forth has played out in the world of robotics as well. Yeah. And a lot has to do with where you can compute, where you can store, and how quickly you can communicate. So which, which of those, or what aspects of that do you think are the, the most pressing challenges right now? For robotics, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. So I, I would say, um, uh, although uh, you know the cost of computation has gone down, you know, roughly twenty thirty percent a year, the cost of storage has gone down again, roughly the same number per year, and the cost of communication has gone down. Mm-hmm. Um, robotics is, is unique because it's not just about compute; it's also about sensing. Yes. So you ki- you kind of want compute and sensing in the same package, um, and you want that. Uh, uh, so again, our sensors are 
high data rate sensors, lots and lots of stuff coming at you, and you want the compute to be integrated with the sensing so you can actually reduce the data locally. Mm -hmm. So this is a great uh, computer engineering slash architecture problem which only roboticists are interested in solving. Um, uh, so, uh, but but that but that that's an, that's a bottleneck right now. Um, I think the other bottleneck is uh, our inability to ship uh, lots of data from one node to another. Yeah. Not because we want to do things centrally, but uh, if you and I want to collaborate and we want to do something together, we should exchange information. And oftentimes, if you don't have the right level of abstraction, which right. mostly we don't, uh, then the easiest way to do this is to just ship all the information back and forth. And at some point, it's go that's going to break. Um, even if you have 5G, that's going to break at some point with a number of... So uh, it's, it's really... I think, I think it's interesting that um, for multi-robot systems, it's the comms link in addition to yeah. the compute sensing link, compute sensing package those are the two big uh, bottlenecks from a computer science standpoint. Mm -hmm. so, so data compression and data abstraction and, and communicating and all of that are kind of yeah. some of the big issues. What, um, what fields or what applications of, those, of that research are you most excited about? I think, um, uh, you know, we think a lot about how robots work to work with each other. And, uh, and there are three different paradigms uh, so one is this notion of coordination. Mm -hmm. uh, so coordination basically means that if you and I, for example, if you and I are working in the same kitchen, we want to make sure we don't get out of each other's way. Seldom are we going to truly cooperate, right? It's not like if I want to, if I want to cut potatoes, I'm, uh, I'm going to hold down the potato and you're going to hit the knife. It, that, that's not how it works. It's just that you know, too many cooks is always a problem. Yeah. So, so you, and when you coordinate, you're basically talking about this very fundamental idea that the efficiency of a task uh, should grow with the number of robots involved. Mm -hmm. So in other words, N robots will take one-tenth the time to do the task. Or if you have N robots, you can, you can do the same task in an area that's N times bigger. And that just requires coordination. Mm -hmm. um, so there... Uh, so, so let me come back to the challenges in, in these three paradigms. But that's the first paradigm. I think the second paradigm has to do with, with, uh, with truly cooperating. So I think of that as where um, I just cannot do it by myself. But if I were able to recruit you, I might be able to do it. Cause, and, or, or if I were able to recruit uh, N teammates. So a good example of that is uh, transporting lo large pieces of equipment or furniture. I can't do it by myself. Maybe the two of us can't do it, but if we have three other people, we can lift this big table and move it across the room. Mm -hmm. So there, the efficiency grows. It's sort of a jump. It's, it's zero efficiency, and then there's a, there's a critical point after which suddenly the efficiency jumps up. So that's, I think of that as cooperation. And then uh, uh, collaboration is something slightly different. It almost requires this notion of heterogeneity. Uh, a robot of a particular type cannot yeah. do it by itself, but if, if A and B were to collaborate with each other, two fundamental di different robots with different capabilities, with different functionality, then they could do something that individually, uh, you know, 100 units of A or 100 units of B could not do, but one A and one B can. Yeah. Um, and, and in some sense, in research area, that you know, if you look at regardless of what area you look at, 
when you talk about collaboration, usually you pick somebody who knows something you don't have mm -hmm. and the other way around. If you and I knew exactly the same thing, why would we collaborate? You just do your own thing. You yeah. don't need me. There seems so. to be kind of a trend in robotics towards, um, towards like the swarm idea. Do you think we're actually moving away from that? So yeah. So coordination is easy. Uh, sorry. Say, let me say that again. So, uh, so so if you think about coordination, it's easy to scale that up, or easy to think about scaling it up, and that's where the swarming idea comes in. You look at birds; they're basically coordinating with each other. They're not really assigning uh, tasks to each other. They're not trying to do right. something that's fundamentally different from what individuals do. Uh, although um, we've studied ants that do cooperative prey retrieval, and there ants do recruit each other to carry big pieces of food back to the nest. Um, so, but, so it's either coordination or, or, or cooperation. Um, I think collaboration is very rare in nature, where you have two fundamentally yeah. different species coming together. Um, they're there in very simple ways. So, for example, symbiotic uh, relationships. Uh, there's a parasite that lives in another, another animal, and they both benefit from each other. Uh, but those are very, very simple. Uh, but in robotics, uh, or, or actually in any kind of uh, uh, human design system, uh, we have different pieces coming together. That's how we, we architect our systems. Yeah. Um, so even if you think about communication, you might think about uh, and, and computation. You might think about big servers, small small computing units. You might have uh, different types of links between different nodes, uh, and that's a that's a problem where you're essentially trying to exploit heterogeneity to get mm -hmm. uh, the, you know the maximum gain. So that's that, so there. So I think the problems in these three areas are very different. So in coordination, it's easy to think about everything is at the edge, just local communication. There's no notion of a cloud. Um, I, have a, I have a team of 100, let's say, if 10 die, the 90, 90 survive, and the efficiency just drops by about 10%. Um, on the other hand, uh, if I have one aerial vehicle coordinating a 10 ground vehicles uh, in the collaborative task, uh, there's a lot more um, danger of a single agent being a point of failure. Yeah. Um, so uh, the issues are very different, and I, I, I think the whether computation happens at the edge or the cloud uh, in these models is also very different. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, you, so you mentioned kind of animals as influence. How much of your research do you draw ideas from kind of bio-inspired things versus from like um, other tech fields or other? Yeah, so I think um, uh, biology or nature um, uh, inspires you to think and create. So I think there's a lot of inspiration to be drawn, not, not necessarily mimicry, but this idea that you look at nature and you cannot help but marvel at the repertoire of things you see in nature. Um, it's, it's, that's a really interesting um, mindset to have. Mm -hmm. On the more practical side, um, you look at industry, and you have to look at industry beyond what, what you're doing. Um, and you have to see what the trends are, and um, you have to see... Uh, again, in a world where compute and sensing is so important and communication is, uh, are so important, uh, you have to look at where technology is going and try to um, uh, leverage uh, what things are working for you. Um, uh, in this talk I gave, somebody actually said something about this, right? 
So um, robotics has actually, for a long time, uh, been about you take a platform, the best one you can find, you take a sensor, the best one you can find, and, you, and then the best compute, and you just literally slap these things one on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not particularly optimal. Uh, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, that that's for better or for worse. A lot of the work that you see at conferences like this uh, do uh, thrive on approaches which essentially involves slapping one thing on top of the other. Yeah. I think there's a there's a broader question of how do you design integrated systems. Um, so something we're interested in, but um, it, 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 it's very hard to uh, come up with these ideas in a bottom-up way. You have to rely a lot on the industry to do the integration. Right, yeah. How much of the, the stuff that your lab works on um, relies on kind of off-the-shelf Everything we do is off the shelf because we're not um, we're not uh, uh, computer hardware people. Yeah. yeah. But we do design our own boards. We bring components together. We obviously do our own um, uh, mechanical hardware design and mm-hmm. fabrication. Um, uh, and then we work with companies. We try to convince the likes of Qualcomm. Hey, you know, we know you do this. And that can you put these two things together in this fashion? And so we've had some success working with Qualcomm. Uh, Nvidia now is very interested in working with us, so we're working with them on this. Um, Intel on the comm side and the communication side. Um, so as interest in robotics goes, and particularly flying robots, I think a lot of companies are also interested in making sure that they're well positioned for the the inevitable. Uh, inflection point that will happen in these technologies. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of your ongoing UAV projects or other projects? Sure, sure. Um, uh, well, uh, just going back to the the um, you know the talk I gave, there are five uh, directions in which we're trying to push technology. One, one is we're trying to make flying robots um, as small as possible so they can fly in constrained environments, indoor environments, in, inside collapsed buildings. Uh, so we're trying to make them small, we're trying to make them safe, which means you have to make them, uh, you have to equip them with sensors, allow them to see the world, uh, and allow them to reason about the world and move in a safe way. So safety, the smarts, and the small size kind of go all hand in hand together. Um, Another thing we work on is getting robots to go as fast as possible, and this is, again, in the context of search and rescue, where oftentimes you don't have uh, the luxury of, uh, you know, traveling uh, and collecting data over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. You want to do it as quickly as possible because you want to react as quickly as possible. Um, And then finally, we look at uh, these three different modes of uh, collaboration, uh, coordination, collaboration, Coordination, cooperation, and collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned both speed and safety as two of the things. Yeah. Do you think in in either a metaphorical or a literal sense, are those kind of opposites? Um, no. I mean, in, when we drive cars, we can we drive them above the speed limit, but we, we can drive, it and <laughs> drive them in safe ways. And why? Because we're always cognizant of uh, everything... Uh, we're cognizant of the environment changing around us. We're, we're aware of things that could go wrong, uh, and we're always in a position to react, mm-hmm. right? So, 
So that really incorporates that third element so of think, sensors. Yeah, and so I think if you're able to sense the environment and you can, in fact, create fast-moving vehicles, and of course the self-driving car industry is interested in doing exactly this. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think advancements, so in, in sensing, do you think advancements in hardware or software are more needed right now? Uh, I would say yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a big difference, I think, when you specialize to aerial vehicles. Yeah. Um, that's because when you try to build small aerial vehicles, uh, you're immediately struck with uh, the size, weight, and power constraints. Right. Uh, so you can't carry anything that's heavy, and you can't carry anything that consumes a lot of power. And you have to remember that anything you carry, even if it's dead weight, consumes power because you have to burn roughly 200 watts for every kilo of payload you carry. So uh, um, thinking about this holistically means uh, you, you're really, again, thinking about compute and sensing and the basic fabric and the batteries all in the same package. Yeah. So it's not one or the other. You need everything, and it's a holistic uh, approach to you know, systems design that, that you need to adopt. Going back to kind of um, some of your influences and science fiction, your early yeah. interests, um, it, what are, if you could design new science fiction, or what are things that you don't think could exist yet but that you would be excited about? Ah, uh, so, you know, it's very interesting uh, my both my um, both my girls were born in the '90s, and mm-hmm. I and I read uh, the entire Harry Potter book series mm-hmm. with them. Um, and you know, by the time we got to book four, they they didn't need me, but I, I had to read them just to just to uh, it was it was one one thing that we, we all grew up together with. And so then I asked, which of those are you familiar with Harry? Yeah. Okay. So I ask, which of those is not possible today? And uh, it comes down to two things. One is this idea of teleportation. The second right. is time travel. Okay. But everything else should be possible. Right? <laughs> okay. What about, um, what are we not there yet with robotics? Um, so what are we not there? I mean, um, if you think about it, in principle, you've done everything. Right? So in principle, uh, we know how to build uh, robots that are superhuman in strength. We know how to build robots that are superhuman in speed. Mm-hmm. We know how to build robots that are superhuman in terms of computation. I mean, you take chess that playing robots. Easy. That, that, that <laughs> easy, right? uh, certainly robots are superhuman in terms of memory. Mm-hmm. Right. So along individual axes, uh, we're already exceeding what science fiction may have thought of. It's the holistic thing we don't have yet. Yeah. Right. So if if a human were if human capabilities were to be measurable along n different axes, then and you just project everything along one axis, we're already superhuman. So we've we've done science fiction, been there, done that, uh, except for the two things I told you about time travel and teleportation. Yeah. Do you think robotics will have a, have any play in fixing or making those two possible? No, but I, I think you can imagine that uh, teleportation would be the equivalent of creating robotic avatars that could exist elsewhere. Uh, yeah, like yeah. telepresence robots are already they're there, but they're there. Uh, it's 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 not the same as uh, as uh, you know. They're, they're, they're not really avatars, right? Yeah. So, but so imagine <laughs> having somebody like you in another location 
uh, instantly. Well, if you could make robots really quickly, presumably I could create a replica of you. Yeah. So that's in principle possible. Interesting. But that, that's the easiest way you could do it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, for your going back to kind of to your current your current ongoing projects, um, you talked about search and rescue as one of the as one of the applications that you're interested in, and I know you have some projects that are, that have to do with like exploration and mines and that kind yeah. of thing. Are there other um, fields that you're or domains that you're particularly excited about? I, th- I think. Uh, uh, to me, uh, so it, oftentimes, so as as people in academia, you know, we're very bad at kind of predicting uh, what would be interesting from a business standpoint. Mm. And mm-hmm. if you're bad at pre- predicting what would be successful commercially, you're also bad at predicting what technology will ad- be adopted. It's not like we we all. I mean, yes, we want to make money, of course, but uh, but by thinking about that, you also. Uh, ensure that you think about what's sustainable and what what will have what's impact. What's practical? What right. people will need. So uh, and search and rescue is not that right. But on the other hand, search and rescue forces you to think about technologies and applications uh, that are very demanding, uh, yeah. and therefore you kind of stretch yourself uh, to the extent possible. So this idea of having small, smart, fast-moving vehicles collaborating with each other quickly, acquiring information to me is just a very nice uh, goal um, that mm-hmm. we set ourselves. Um, I think the specific instantiation of that um, for us has really come to life where we're thinking about um, small vehicles that can enter um, uh, reactor buildings. So as you know, we've, we've had uh, uh, three uh, reactors, nuclear reactors in Fukushima that, that basically uh, underwent a lot of damage during the tsunami and the... And the uh, and the, and the flooding that happened um, back in 2011. And uh, we're trying to deploy one of our really small robots through a hatch into a reactor containment vessel mm-hmm. um, and uh, essentially uh, fly around for about five minutes and get the data back so that humans can uh, better understand what's inside that, uh, inside that reactor vehicle. So... Clearly, this is not going to be a fast-moving thing reacting immediately. The disaster happened eight years ago, but uh, it's a, this is a real test of what robotics is capable about, yeah. cap- capable of. And a real implementation of something. And, that and can a real make implementation. A difference. And, and, I, and I feel like if we do that, uh, we'll, we'll we'll be able to show that you know something substantial can be done. Yeah. Good. Do you have any closing remarks or anything else you'd want? No, I think I, I'll just say a couple of things. I think. Um, it's just a great field to be in. Um, and, you know, to me, the big difference between engineering and science, although uh, we always say science, technology, engineering, and math in one, disip- one, 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 one breath, STEM, yeah. uh, the big thing about uh, robotics is it's the quintessential engineering discipline because you're trying to create things that didn't exist, while in science you analyze things that, you know, that you know exist. Um, and so to me, robotics is that it's, it, it is quintessentially engineering. There's a synthetic element, and there are no rules. Yeah, so I think that, so to me, that's a very interesting part of the field. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah. And that's all from us for today. As always, there's plenty more episodes on robohub.org forward slash 
podcast. And if that's not enough, check out our featured articles on robohub.org for even more robot-related news, views and analyses. And if you've come across an exciting robotic story, are keen to hear more about a certain robot-related topic or have a question about something we've covered in the past, we're always happy to hear from our listeners. So get in touch with our president, Audro, at audro.nash at robohub.org. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Collectives with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>